Welcome to Cool Explorations, I'm your host Tony Peters. Today we're going to be taking a look at another section from the Gospel by Mike O'Dowd, and this section is called Victory and Vindication, and it's going to pick up in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 15, which is right after where we left off last time. Uh, Christ has returned. He has conquered Satan and his followers. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he sits upon his rightful throne. This is not where the story of Satan and humanity ends, however. Satan is bound for a thousand years, but he's still going to be released for a very brief time. And in that time, he is going to be determined to trip man up one more time to take them away from the one true God, Yahweh. And it's going to determine who really follows that one true God, Yahweh, or who follows Satan. And after this period, Satan is going to be bound forever. So during this period, and during today, we must make sure we're on the right side of this final period of testing. When it comes to our beliefs as Christians regarding end times, there's many different views as to when the rapture will take place. Will it take place before the tribulation, in the middle of it, or at the end? Arguments from the scripture can be made for each, but they all typically have one point of agreement in common. And that is that there will be a millennium, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth after his return, a final age in human history that will usher in the age of eternity. In the early centuries of church history, it was very prominent for them to view that the end times would be a literal sequence of events consisting of the resurrection and Christ's return, Christ's thousand-year reign, and then the final judgment. After that, there will be the age of eternity. But the 4th century AD or so, somewhere around there is where it changed. The prominent teaching within the church viewed the events of Revelation 20 as only being symbolic, and the binding of Satan in verses 1 to 3 was understood to be uh, a restraint placed on Satan in the church age. The resurrection spoken of in 20 verses 4 to 6 was understood to be a spiritual resurrection at the moment of salvation. The thousand-year reign of the saints with Christ in verses 4 to 6 symbolized the present role of the church and its rulers. The time of rebellion co um, was coincident with the unbinding of Satan in verses 7 to 10, symbolized by the Great Tribulation and Christ's return to bring Satan his final defeat. And the events in verses 11 to 15 were then understood to be a resurrection and judgment of the just and unjust at Christ's coming. Simply put, this was taught that Revelation 20 was a symbolic depiction of Christ's return and his work and reign through his church in the present age and all the events associated with his future return. Uh, when that's taught, it kind of indicates that there will be no literal thousand-year reign of Christ, no millennium, uh, which is why this view is called the amillennial. And it was a dominant view within the church uh, from the 4th century up to at least the 19th century. And I tell you this just to make you aware that there's a lot of diversity in views regarding this subject and regarding this topic. Uh, and people do make it a big dividing issue, uh, and it really shouldn't be a big dividing issue. Uh, 
And what I will be teaching on and what I'll be reading about is going to be the approach of Revelation 20 through the early church's interpretive lens of text, that there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. And as the title of this chapter indicates, Christ's thousand-year reign will bring the victory and vindication both for God and for his people. Revelation 20 will thematically follow this title because victory and vindication are the primary purposes for Christ's thousand-year reign and his return to gather his people to him and, and to save us from our own sin and iniquity. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26, Paul writes of Christ's reign. Then comes the end. Then he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Son will reign until every enemy of God is destroyed. The Antichrist will fall at the end of Revelation 19. Christ will be vindicated by judgment as we'll see in Revelation 20. Christ will be victorious over the Antichrist and his armies, yet one enemy in particular remained conspicuously at large. Verse 2 of Revelation 20 describes him as the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Satan is on the loose, but we don't need to fear. After Christ's victory over Satan and his armies, there will be that time of judgment, uh, and it'll be a time that will be held will all be held to account for the choices to follow or reject Christ. We want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, during this judgment. And we have to look at it and ask ourselves, what will be said of our lives? Let's first consider from the text uh, how his victory will bring glory to God. Christ's reign will glorify God by humiliating a proud adversary. From the beginning of the, of the biblical account, God's foremost adversary has been Satan, who, whose name literally means adversary. Certainly, by those angels that accompanied Satan during his rebellion in opposition to, to God, the mass of humanity is going to follow him. And over history, so many have joined Satan. But Revelation 20 shows us Satan's ringleader role in deceiving the nations is vital in transforming sinful humanity into an organized rebellion against God once and for all. But once again, Satan is only effective because God permits him to be. He allows Satan to do that so that we would have a choice to follow God or follow Satan. And it's that choice that, that is really the love that we feel, that, that love that, that we have from God, that love that none of us can explain. And in truth, the book of Revelation reveals Satan, that dragon and ancient serpent, to really be nothing more than what he has been from the beginning, a liar and a deceiver who is relatively powerless before God. Twice, God will dispatch Satan without even directing, uh, directly lifting a hand against him. The angel Michael will cast him out of heaven before the great tribulation. As we know, 
from Revelation 12, 7 to 9. And this angel in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, will take hold of him, bind him up, and shut him in prison, powerless to escape. And when the thousand years of Christ's reign ends, as verses 7 to 10 indicate here, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Revelation 16, 17, and 19, John described the great final battle of this present age. The Antichrist rallies the armies of the earth to battle against God and his people. But when God acts through Christ, it will be a swift and anticlimactic end, as we discussed last time, as we know from Revelation 19. Might Satan somehow be proudly deluded enough to think that the outcome will somehow be different with himself in the lead. Satan repeats history. At the end of the millennium, and again, once God acts, the end is equally swift and anticlimactic. The great deceiver of the nations, despite all his delusions of sur surplanting God and replacing him to bring glory and worship to himself, is nothing more than a petty deceiver before God. He will be unceremoniously dispatched to an eternal reunion with the remainder of his false trinity to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Christ's reign will bring the great and final victory over his kingdom. And this victory will put Satan in his place. It'll knock him off the, out of the picture. And it will bring the enemies of God under Christ's subject, uh, subjection. Christ's reign will bring the blessings of victory to God's people for all ages. In verse 6, John describes the blessings of the saints' resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Then goes on to describe those blessings. The second death, which verse 14 indicates, is the eternal judgment in the lake of fire, and it will have no power over anyone. His faithful people of all ages will serve God as priests, making us a kingdom of priests, as he promised both his people Israel in Exodus 19 and to the church again in Revelation 1.6. And finally, we will be able to commensurate with that reign. John says in verse 4 that we will be given a high honor of reigning with God for a thousand years. And he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. In other words, we will exercise the latitude to stand in judgment on Christ's behalf. And if you think John must be referring to someone else here, consider the following text. In 1 Corinthians 6.2, Paul asked the Corinthian church, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In Luke 22.30, Jesus tells his disciples, they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we've discussed in a, in a previous one, um, that word judge can also mean to rule or to govern. So it's, it's a ruling and governing position that, that we're going to be given in heaven. And 
Revelation 19.15 says of Christ's return that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And yet, Jesus tells the church at uh, Thyatira in Revelation 2.26-27, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. God's people of all ages will be resurrected by Christ in the victory and ushered into the millennial kingdom and in this final age of human history under Christ's reign, we will serve him as his priest to the nations, representing his word, his will, and his rule and acting in judgment as he, his representatives uh, to bring the earth into conformity with his will. This will be our rule and victory that is won for us by Christ. And in that role, we will both see and experience vindication. One would think that the tribulation period and Christ's victory would be enough to convince humanity and etern uh, for eternity that following Christ is the only choice to be made. One would also be thinking incorrectly. Humanity is so susceptible to Satan's deceiving tongue that when he is briefly released again, many more will follow him in rebelling against God. And once again, this will be a vindication for both God and his people. This time, though, let's consider from the text how God's people will be vindicated. Christ's reign will bring vindication to God's people. And you may be wondering from the previous point that we made, uh, who in the world will be judging and ruling over in the millennium? Remember in Matthew 24, 22, Jesus said of the tribulation, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Um, and this kind of implies that some percentage of humanity will survive the tribulation. And remember as well that the universal slaughter of the Antichrist and his armies was just that, his armies. There are several places in scripture that indicate that both Jews and Gentiles, although in greatly diminished numbers, will survive and inhabit the earth during the millennium. And if we keep that narrative going uh, from Revelation, uh, this will include every person, great and small, who took the mark of the beast and worshipped him. Furthermore, Paul teaches the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Perhaps referring to the demons who have not been bound at this time as Satan has. It, there's many different things that people take from this, different angles that people take from this verse. Um, and remember um, to, that judge originally means to rule or to govern. I'll remind you of that. Uh, this also gives an explanation as to why in Christ's reign in the millennium, and our reign as rep his representatives, uh, will have to be administered with a rod of iron. God will be vindicated in the millennium because Christ will bring to pass what God has intended for his faithful image bearers, and he, he intended this from the very beginning, when he said to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. As the Lord said in Genesis 1.28, this word subdue in Genesis is a military term used to describe an action of bringing a hostile force into subjection to your rule. 
And what could possibly be a hostile forest in need of subduing in a very good creation, which it was before the fall? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Perhaps a world also inhabited by Satan and his demonic compatriots who are consigned to this very good creation after their rebellion in heaven, as John describes in Revelation 12:4, perhaps a proud adversary who wanted nothing to do with being subjected to these frail creatures made out of the dust, who brought, who he thought he had destroyed with the very purpose of God. He, he, he thought he destroyed the purpose of God by deceiving Adam and Eve into trading their dominion for his rebellion. Uh, and we're, we're reminded again of, of, of the ruling. God, in promising his adversary Satan that an offspring of a woman would come into the world to reverse the damage and restore his plan for creation, perhaps God will actually bring that to pass in Christ. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3 God's people will be vindicated in Christ's millennial reign because they will stand in righteous judgment over the likes of those who have always brought them persecution and torment because they hold to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Revelation 20, verse 4 Our judgment will be the judgment we exercise over the nations in the millennial with the authority that Christ has given us, as Christ told the church at Thyatira. But the final judgment God exercises will be his and his alone, and it will be an eternal judgment. And in doing so, Christ will vindicate God in his final judgment. Verses 11 to 15 describe what is often referred to as a great white throne, judgment. The final judgment of God which seals the fate of all for eternity, either for blessing or the horror of the second death, which is the lake of fire, as is mentioned in verses 14 and 15. We've already seen this is the eternal fate of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. And in verse 13, death and Hades will be thrown into the fire as well. And who will that be? John gives us an idea of this in verse 15. He says that anyone whose name is not written in the book of life, that's who that will involve. In Revelation 3, 5, Jesus tells the church at Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And as we know from Revelation, the one who conquers is the one who holds fast to a faithful testimony to Jesus. In Daniel 12, 1-2, Daniel makes a similar assertion about faithful Jews during the tribulation. But at that time your people will, shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to, the everlast, to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. As Daniel teaches, and as John teaches, here in Revelation 20, we will be resurrected, resurrected and judged. The judgment for the faithful found written in the book of life will be everlasting life. The judgment for those whose names were not found there will be shame and everlasting contempt. This stark reality often provokes a harsh backlash against the notion God could so judge. But the fact is, he will act to ensure he is clearly vindicated. 
During the tribulation, John records four times in Revelation that people did not repent despite the harsh judgments God brought upon them in order to turn them to him. That's always the purpose, to turn people to God. They chose instead to continue to worship Satan and the Antichrist and to live the life of grave immorality that such worship inspires. As John writes in Revelation 16, 9-11, they did not repent and give him glory. People gnawed at their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And in the millennium, despite all the blessings that will come to the world under the visible thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and King, the Son of God, humanity will need a rod of iron to submit to his will. And at the first opportunity, all the nations of the earth, represent, uh, represented in reference by John and Ezekiel's account um, at the Battle of Gog and Magog in verses 8 to 11, will flock once more to Satan and his deception, and they will call to rebellion. God is not rash or unfair or arbitrary in his judgment. Christ's reign will vindicate him. His judgments are true and just. In verse 4, John revealed that after Christ's thousand-year reign, Satan must be released for a little while. The verb translated must be uh, is a divine imperative. Uh, it's the verb the New Testament writers use to indicate God is commanding himself to act. Satan must be released because God must be vindicated. He will unequivocally prove that he is true and just in his judgments. As one commentator writes, after a thousand years of experiencing Christ, the unbelieving nations throw themselves after Satan the first chance they get. The message is that a billion years, a trillion years, they would do the same. Thus, they must suffer the same penalty as the one they worship, namely eternal torment. Those bent on rejecting Christ will do so, and not even the direct and daily presence of God for an eternity will change that. Bottom line. Though released for another short time, Satan will once again be defeated, and this time he will not be given another chance, and humanity will be in heaven or in hell for all of eternity. It's, it's a final judgment. This is something that a lot of people don't like, but there is heaven and there is hell. And people have made their choices, and now they must either suffer or rejoice for all of eternity. It's a choice they've made themselves. The psalmist writes, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And that's Psalm 1-5. John speaks similarly of eternal life in Revelation 21, 7-8, as he records God's words. He says, The one who conquers will have his, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But as Jesus himself says several times in the gospel, a tree is known by its fruit. Genuine faith will bear the fruit that it marks. As Alan Johnston um, contends in his commentary on Revelation 20, he says, Works are unmistakable evidence of the loyalty of the heart. They express either belief or unbelief, faithfulness or unfaithfulness. The judgment will reveal through the records whether or not the loyalties were with God and the Lamb 
or with God's enemies. John's theology of faith and its inseparable relation to works is the same as Jesus's and Paul's. And that's John 5, 29 and Romans 2, 6 to 16 for reference. This judgment is not a balancing of good works or bad works. Those who have their names in the Lamb's book of life will also have records of the righteous deeds. The opposite will be true as well. The imagery reflects the delicate balance between grace and obedience. How we live matters. And we can leave off with a final thought from Paul in Galatians 6, 7-9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And for the one who sows to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We make choices every day, and we must live with those choices and the fallout from those choices, whether a good choice or a bad choice. Sin is no different. We choose to sin, and we choose to follow Satan's deceptions, or we choose to walk in righteousness following Christ. These choices have more than just an earthly ramification. They have an eternal and heavenly ramification as well. And we must think about our actions very carefully. Thank you for listening to Cool Explorations. Where you will stand when Judgment Day comes is up to you. Will you stand with Christ or will you stand with Satan? It's up to you to make that decision today, to make that choice. You don't want to wait until it's too late. Choose to follow Christ and to share his love with those around you. God loves us, which is why we are given the choice. Make the right choice. Decide to accept the grace and mercy of forgiveness that is being offered by Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Make that decision today. If you would like to contact me for any reason, feel free to do so at tpeters745 at gmail.com.